2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Christine Gentry.
3: Honey, you are doing a wonderful thing. You must remember to be one with the pain.
2: (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just want to say, listen, I have just created by far the best, the most thorough, the most dynamic storytelling for business class I've ever taught. It's in conjunction with the folks at One Month. You know, they create these incredible one-month-long online classes where you're watching me giving lectures. You're watching me interacting with other students and helping them share their stories. You're also watching classic stories told by people like Steve Jobs, dissecting those. You're getting feedback, actual feedback from me. You're sending in videos of your stories. At the end of the month, you will have three Three fully workshopped stories that you can share in job interviews, over lunches with clients, at networking cocktail parties, stories you can share with your own team or with other teams you're collaborating with. I mean, the possibilities are endless. If you have a career, you need to communicate, and there is a way to communicate that grabs people that makes people feel, and that people remember. If you can't make it into the course from the end of May through June, maybe a friend of yours can. Listen, go to onemonth.com slash risk to enter to win a free enrollment into the Storytelling for Business premium course. Everyone who enters will also get 20% off. No purchase is necessary to enter, but if you win, you're already enrolled and we'll refund you. We're taking all entries until the end of the day on Wednesday, May 25th, when we'll randomly pick a winner the next day. Again, go to onemonth.com slash risk and become a part of this extraordinary Storytelling for Business online class experience i'm so proud of it and i can't wait to be interacting with you there finally sometimes it feels like there aren't enough hours in the day even when you're working past the nine to five so if you're still making time consuming trips to the post office you need a better way and you know goddamn well what it is it's stamps.com Com. With Stamps.com, you get the postage you need the instant you need it. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your computer and printer. It's so quick and easy. You save money with Stamps.com, too. Just a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. Plus, you'll get special postage discounts you can't find at the post office. We use Stamps.com at risk and and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Get started with Stamps.com today within minutes you'll be printing postage right from your desk go to stamps.com before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk that's stamps.com enter risk now here's the show Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Austin Peralta behind me now. Oh my goodness! I am back from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Fantastic show we did there. The night before, we had an amazing show in Brooklyn at the Bell House, and we did a show in Los Angeles this past weekend. My goodness, we are just kicking it out. We are kicking out the jams, motherfuckers. We are uh, a storytelling machine here. And this week's episode is all over the map emotionally. we're, We're calling it Stumbling Blocks. Three people telling stories in three different cities from three very different kinds of life experiences. Some silly and some very serious. In a little bit, we're going to hear a really unique story from Grant Robinson. He shared it with us in our Dallas, Texas trip a little while back. But before that, the first ever appearance on the show of Andrew Ritchie. <laughs> it was a real treat having Andrew on, fan of the show, and a, a newcomer on the comedy scene in New York City. It's really exciting to see someone so young, and kind of, you know, just just getting their start in it all, get up at the Bell House, which is such a, you know, a big, you know, impressive sort of theater, and, and do such a wonderful job. So here he is now. This is Andrew Ritchie with a story we call The Sham Identity.
4: Oh my God, speaking of risk, tonight my employer is here. <laughs> like, like, not in, I, like, like I invited him and he like knows like that I do comedy. Like He didn't know I did comedy. I was just walking back to my desk and I see over like his shoulder on his computer, he's buying tickets to the show. <laughs> and I'm like, bro, are you stalking me? <laughs> and he's like, no, I go to risk every month. And I'm like, oh, bless you. Also, in my head, don't get fired, (laughs) don't get fired. Um, So I'm only telling a story about um, breaking the law and deceiving people, (laughs) but um, it was when I was 19. So holla at the statute of limitations. Um, So I I was 19 and like what a 19 year old want to do, drink. Right, right. I was in college, like in college it's popular to drink. I was also in college in Wisconsin. There's nothing else to do <laughs> but drink. So so I was looking for a fake ID. I was on the internet looking for a fake ID. And this is my second attempt to find a fake ID. Because my first attempt to find a fake ID, because I had this theory, This is, the theory's really important, so I should back up and tell you about the theory. I was in uh, the suburbs of Chicago in Evanston, Illinois, and my theory was, uh, because I was in Evanston, in the suburbs, and because I went to school in Wisconsin, uh, where, because both of these places are very white, <laughs> that all I had to do was convince white people I was of age. Because, like, black people, we got more com- important things to be concerned about, especially around Chicago. Um, LAUGHTER so, I have this theory about white people that they think all black people look the same. Uh, and this isn't just a theory. This is like a thing that's experienced by black people, by the way. Oh <laughs> uh, no offense, guys, but it happens. Um, so, as long as I convince, convince white people, I'm cool, right? So, I just need a brown person of age on this ID. That's it. That's it. I'm cool. So, my first attempt was going to downtown Evanston and asking people that look older than me, brown guys that look older than me, if I could buy their ID. (laughs) If you take one thing away from this story, it's don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And, (laughs) uh, yeah, don't do that. (laughs) So uh, that didn't work. And it also creeped me the fuck out asking them for it. So I was like, but... But I was convinced all I had to do was ask. So it was like, how do I ask a ton of people something really weird? And that's how I turned to Craigslist. (laughs) And I wasn't just, but, but it would still be weird to just ask someone on Craigslist, yo, can I buy your ID? So I came up with this ingenious plan. I was gonna post a bunch of dating ads that were just like hey i'm looking for a skinny light-skinned black kid who's in his early 20s and i want to (laughs) fuck and as these uh as people responded i would just be like yo actually i don't want to fuck but hey you probably look like me because that's what i'm looking for can you sell me your id And I did this. <laughs> like, I went on Craigslist. I posted, I'm, a, I'm looking for an early 20s skinny black kid that wants to fuck. And I sent these out. And oh my God, I got so many dick pics back. <laughs> but if someone did post a pic of their face, I would reply, actually, I'm under 21 and I'm just trying to buy an ID. <laughs> so... <laughs> one dude actually replied and said he would do it this guy chris thomas um and here's the thing chris thomas was not black (laughs) he was he was indian and like you know i have i have all this hair right now but at the time i also had a ton of hair had dreadlocks down my back and this dude was bald And on the ID he wanted to sell me, it said that the date of the photo was like two months ago. (laughs) There is no way that I was growing all this hair in that amount of time, right? But I was down because I had my theory that all black people look the same to white people and I'm gonna be cool. So we made an arrangement to meet in a grocery store parking lot still in the suburbs of Chicago (laughs) and we do we like drive out there and I'm like so excited I'm like I can't believe this works I can't believe this works I can't believe this works (laughs) and I'm going out there and we pull into the parking lot and we park next to each other and we like look at each other and I'm like I can't believe this guy's gonna sell me his ID and he was gonna sell it to me for a hundred dollars because that's all I had (laughs) and so I'm gonna sell his ID I'm gonna buy his ID and Like, I could take out a bank account as him, I could take out a loan as him, and seriously, as soon as he sees me, the first thing out of his mouth is like, are you sure you wanna do this? You don't look anything like me. So so he's the one backing out at this point. And I'm like, no, dude, I got it. I'm going to take it on a test drive. Like, just give me your ID. We're at the grocery store. I'm going to go buy some liquor with it. So I go into the grocery store. And I'm like, okay, what can I buy? Also, I don't have any money. I only have that $100. Maybe a little bit more in my bank account. So I'm like, what do I get? What do I get? What do I get? I go down an aisle. And this is, by, by the way, this is like on a Saturday, right? This is when people are getting groceries for their family. I grab a single bottle of Guinness beer. <laughs> and, I, and I take this single bottle of Guinness beer up to the cashier and I set it down and everyone else is buying groceries for their family, and it's some middle-aged white lady that's the cashier. So this is my target demographic for <laughs> deceiving. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I am like is this gonna work? Is this gonna work? She just glances at it, sells me the beer. And I'm out. <laughs> I'm running out, like, I got my beer, I got my Guinness, I have, I have won. <laughs> and so, so I go back to Chris, who's selling me the ID. And once again, I'm, the, the, the really fortunate thing about this is that his name was Chris, because if he had an Indian last name, I would not be prepared for that, because this is like before Netflix, and there was not like a Master of None episode that explained <laughs> the canonical. <laughs> that explain the canonical of uh, immigrant experience. So I give Chris the $100, I run out, I'm victorious. I go back to my school in Wisconsin. I'm cool as fuck. I'm buying underage kids alcohol. <laughs> I'm, I'm going out with my older friends to the bars and I get super cocky about it, right? Like, so I'm buying like, Like, I'm going to the grocery store and buying an entire basket of assorted alcohols that don't make any sense together, (laughs) and and I'm just celebratory. But there's this one place, I'm back in Wisconsin, let me remind you, there's this one place that I will not go to because they card hard, because they're right by our tiny college in Wisconsin, and they know that there are lots of college students there, right? But then I get lazy, and I'm like, I better just go to the place that cards hard, right? And I'm like, I don't, have t- I don't have time for this, right? So I go to the place that cards hard. I just get one bottle of vodka, and I think I'm cool. It's like, I, I, don't, I don't know, I'm fine. It's like, I put, it, I put it down. Another middle-aged white lady cashier, target demographic, already been fooled. Put it down. <laughs> and she scans it, and she looks at my ID. And for the first time, she says looks like you've grown a lot of hair. (laughs) But I'm like, all right. Well, the whole reason I'm going to do this is because I'm like overly cocky and I feel like I can get away with this. So I'm going to play dumb. And I'm like, excuse me. (laughs) And she says, she she just says the same thing again. Looks like you've grown a lot of hair. And I just keep playing dumb. I'm like, excuse me. (laughs) So I make her say it. And she says, I don't think this is you. So let me once again remind you that we are in a small town in Wisconsin and everyone knows everyone. So I lean in really close and I've already planned for what I'm gonna do in this situation, I got this. I touch her on the shoulder and she's really confused and I ask, hey, if I tell you something, will you promise not to tell anyone else? And she (laughs) looks at me so confused. (laughs) She is so, so, so confused. And I tell her, they're extensions. And she looks me in the eye and she goes, Oh my God, they look so real! And she sells me the vodka and I'm out. (laughs) And when I was done with that ID, when I turned 21, I never went back to that store by the way, but when I turned 21, I handed that ID off to a very olive-skinned Jewish friend of mine (laughs) who also seemed to pass for Christopher Thomas. (laughs) Thanks a lot, guys. I'm Andrew. That was it.
1: Wait, you changed your name to... McLovin? What kind of a stupid name is that, Fogel? What, are you trying to be an
2: Irish R&B singer? Oh, they let you pick any name you want when you get down there. And you landed on McLovin.
0: Yeah, I was between that and Muhammad.
2: Why the fuck would it be between that or Muhammad? Why don't you just pick a common name like a normal person? Muhammad is the most commonly used name on earth. Read a fucking book for once.
1: Fungle,
3: have you ever actually met anyone named Muhammad? Have you actually ever met anyone named McLovin? No,
2: that's why you picked a dumb fucking name. Fuck you. Give me that. All right. You look like a future pedophile in this picture, number one. Number two, it doesn't even have a first name. It just says McLovin! What? What name? What name? Who are you, Seal? Vogel, his ID says you're 25 years old. Why wouldn't you just put 21, man? Seth, Seth, Seth,
0: listen up, ass face. Every day, hundreds of kids go into the liquor store with their fake IDs, and every single one says they're 21. How many 21-year-olds do you think there are in this town? It's us fucking strategy, all right?
1: Let's stay calm, OK? Let's not lose our heads. Oh. It's, it's It's a fine ID. It'll, it's gonna work. It's passable, okay? This, this isn't terrible. I mean, it's up to you, Fogel. This guy's either gonna think, here's another kid with a fake ID or here's McLovin, the 25-year-old Hawaiian organ donor. It's 1 a.m. and my son, who's not even two weeks old, I'm holding him, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs. And I've heard babies cry before, but I've never heard anything like this. I've never heard anything this loud. I've never heard anything this long, and I've never heard anything this angry. It's basically something like, and imagine that for about, at this point it was 15 minutes straight, and so, my wife has gone to bed, and I know that it's not he's hungry because I watched him at the boob for 45 minutes, whereupon he fell asleep. And my wife has gone to bed 30 minutes previous because she's exhausted, and I don't want to wake her up because I don't want to be that idiot husband who can't troubleshoot the baby. <laughs> I mean, I troubleshoot computer networks, I should be able to troubleshoot the baby. And I'm doing everything that I know to do. I am rocking him. I am swaying with him. I am singing him songs. I am bouncing him. I swaddle him. I re-swaddle him. I go to change his diaper. That just pisses him off even more. And he hits that penultimate baby cry where they completely lose air. And he's like, Aah! And call him before the storm. Aah! 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 Louder. Faster. Longer. And suddenly, I'm not hearing a baby cry anymore. Suddenly, I'm hearing, you're stupid. You're a failure as a parent. You're a fucking idiot. You're going to turn out just like your dad. And I, he's here, and his eyes are closed, and I start snarling at him. And I sort of take a step back, but he's still continuing. I'm still hearing that in my head, and I say, stop yelling at me. And he keeps going and he keeps going and I keep hearing these things in my head until finally I just go, what did you want? And his cry just amplifies and I know immediately that I have crossed the line and I just, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I love you, I love you more than anything else in the entire world, please, please, I just want you to, I want to know what's wrong with you, I want to fix what's wrong, and I just want you to stop crying, and it finally gets to a point where I go in to the room, and I return him to my wife, because that's, he was hungry, that was it, and I'm outside, in the living room, thinking about this, thinking, you kind of did turn into your father, which I did not want to do, despite the fact that I play one pretty convincingly on Facebook, I'm not an atheist, and before all of this ever happened, I'm looking up into the heavens going, okay, look, whatever you do, if I'm going to end up like my dad, I don't want any of this to work. I don't want any of this to take place because my father was this sort of high-functioning alcoholic bully made worse by the fact that he was great to his friends. He had a lot of friends. He was so well-liked. He was an entertainer. He was charming, especially when he was drunk a lot of fun. It was when he wasn't drinking, it was like walking around a minefield. You never knew what was going to set the man off. One thing would be fine one day, and the next, out of nowhere, he would just start yelling at the top of his lungs at all of us, and only his family. So I didn't want to be like that. And my wife, later on, I start talking to her about this, and I explain. During that moment... um, thinking about this I remembered one particular instance I was 12 years old we were riding in the car and uh, he was taking me on an errand of some kind and the previous week he had been trying to instruct me not to, to stop saying he goes and start saying he said and he's asked me about school and I you know, tell him about an interaction between a friend of mine and I and I say yeah he goes hey what, what, what are you doing and I go and my father goes no it's not he goes it's he said I, I, I know No, you don't know. Otherwise, you wouldn't have said it incorrectly. And it's like this poison arrow has just hit me right in the heart. I completely turn my head to the window and my eyes start to burn a little bit with tears, but I don't cry because fuck him. And plus, I'm used to it by this point. So my wife comes out and I begin to explain later what had happened. And thankfully... She's understanding. She's empathetic. She's forgiving. And I figure if she can forgive me, then I can forgive me. And so I'm glad we're going to put this behind us. It's not going to happen again. I know what to look for. We both know you know, if the baby cries, try feeding him first. And by the third time that this has happened between me and my son, I realize this is a pattern. I got to do something about this. And I go back to therapy, and it helps for a little while. Um, we start putting, at six months, we start putting my son up in his room with a monitor to sleep train him, to get him down to go to sleep. And at this age, you can't let them cry for more than 10 minutes at a time. That's the one thing about, that's sort of the one rule about the baby. You can't let him cry for more than 10 minutes at a time. And so he's in his crib. And what I notice is that it's, it's, getting, it's getting worse you know, it's, for me, not having a set of boobs, it's difficult for me to get him down. He's not something, I can't nurse him to sleep like my wife can. So he is having difficulty. And it's, it's, it's escalating a little bit. Um, and my reaction, mm-hmm. by time number three, because I would go in and I would sort of stalk towards his crib if he woke up again, you know pick him up rough and just, damn it,
2: go to sleep.
1: And of course his cries would just go through the roof and then I would start that cycle of this shame and guilt and regret burning a hole in my stomach and apologizing to him and then confessing and forgiveness and therapy. But by the third time this happens when my son is trying to go to sleep, I have him against my shoulder and he's uh, quiet, I I hears steady breathing, his body is relaxed and I lean to put him down in the crib and I get him down in the crib and I lean back up and he starts to cry again. Okay, So I go back down and I pick him back up and I'm again kind of consoling him and and swaying with him and he goes limp, he goes quiet, his breathing gets even, I lean down, I put him in, I get back up, he starts crying again. So I reach down put him up on my shoulder and by this time I wait longer and longer every time with shoulder just to be on the safe side and it's probably I get about an hour and a half in two hours in and I put him down the third time and I get up and I get as far as the door and I open the door and he starts screaming and I fucking lose it and I stomp towards the crib pick him up rough and go is this how it's gonna fucking be is this how it's gonna fucking be you're gonna stay up all fucking night you're gonna fucking keep me up at night what the fuck is wrong with you and his crying goes completely nuts and i'm like jesus christ what's wrong with him what the fuck is wrong with you and this is after having gone back and forth three different times to the crib and blowing up at him and apologizing to him. And by this thir- third time, I know that after I've said that, I, I can't stay there anymore because it's... I-, I, just, I put him down, I walk out, I shut the door, and of course he starts crying even more, which is what led to that escalation because I'm no longer in the room and he's alone. And again, I'm not hearing a baby cry. I'm hearing these, you're stupid... You're a fucking idiot. You're a failure as a parent, and you have turned out, just like your dad. And I am pacing back and forth outside of the door, and I know intellectually that what is happening is absolutely unacceptable on every level. I'm just like, God damn it, what what am I going to do? And I feel my wife's hand on my shoulder, and she says, go downstairs, I've got this. And I said, okay. And I go downstairs and I'm sitting there on the couch with my head in my hands and I, 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 I'm thinking that something has to happen different. This horrifying realization comes over me that my pleasure centers are getting a kick out of this. For some fucked up reason, it feels powerful to be this angry. And I'm sitting there contemplating this thinking, and this calm voice goes into my head and says, how long before you start to shake him? How long before you hit him in anger? And I'm like, I would never do that. That didn't happen to me. I would never do that to my son. I would sooner take my own life than harm, physically harm my child. And then I started thinking, maybe that's it. You know, he's still young. He's not going to remember me. I'm not that great of a husband. My wife can find someone better. And he'll never know the difference. But I remembered I promised myself I was not going to turn out like my father. So... My wife comes downstairs a lot less empathetic, forgiving, and understanding because I think she may have heard everything over the monitor. And I just look at her and say, "I, I got to call. I got to call the doctor. I can't. I can't do this." And she said, "Okay." I go to the doctor's office and I'm sitting down, and I say, "Look, I, I keep losing my temper with my son when he cries." And the doctor says, "Well, how old is he?" I said, nine months." He said. Well, that's what babies do. They cry. And I said, yeah, I know. And I start explaining all of the details of what happens when I lose my temper. And I get as far as stalking over to the crib and picking him up rough when I look up and he is just staring at me. Open mouthed, wide eyed. And I say... Doctor, I'm not telling you these things to try and justify my actions or rationalize my behavior. What's happening is my pleasure centers are going completely nuts. You know, I know what I'm doing is reprehensible. That's why I'm here. I need help. And that completely broke his spell. And he says, all right, we're going to prescribe you some antidepressants. And I said, what about Wellbutrin? I hear it works really well. And he says, that side effect is irritability. He says, if you've got anger probably best to go with an SSRI <laughs> and I didn't want to do that because I had had bad experiences friends and whatnot and I had had a big aversion to it just in general I thought always it was a crunch um, so I looked it up he said sertraline 50 milligrams and I looked it up and it was Zoloft and I was like oh god the one that I didn't want like the only one is the one I get prescribed but it didn't matter it didn't matter. At this point, I was desperate. I was willing to do anything and everything it took. And I did. And I noticed an immediate difference. I was so grateful. The next time that I was up in my son's room and he was going on and on, you know, I could feel myself start to tense up, purse my lips, and then the the demons of my darker nature that would normally push me towards that fucked up reward were just like, it, it wasn't there. And I had the ability to step back Take a deep breath and realize I, I got to walk out of here, and walked out calmly without slamming the door, scaring him further. And I came up with a plan, and I walked back into his room, and I sang the most epic version of "Old MacDonald" <laughs> in dactylic hexameter. I mean, I ran out of animals. It was like one animal per letter. You know, I went through the alphabet twice. I started making shit up, you know. On that farm, he grew some weed. (laughs) With a puff, puff, give and a puff, puff, give. (laughs) And I was able to walk out of there, and it it, it was great. I mean, there were occasional slip-ups, but for the most part... Everything was awesome and our bond really grew exponentially, which was also helped out by the fact that at one year old, you're allowed to let him cry it out, and so that was definitely a factor. But during that time, our bond grew, and there was this one night where I would normally read to him in this futon chair in his room, and uh, we would use this, this little you know, night light, and I would turn the light out and it was time for him to go to bed, but this time... After I told him the story was ending, before I could turn out the light, he turns to me, gives me a kiss on the cheek, and just wraps his arms around my neck and just stays there. And I just lean back and I sit there, taking it, like feeling this unconditional love that I did not deserve, and trust, and all of those things that make, for me, being a dad amazing. We're right there, and I knew at that moment there was something I was always going to remember for the rest of my life. You know, we hadn't had... One of my favorite things to do with him was take a nap. That was one of the ways I could calm him down, and it hadn't happened in almost a year. And so it was happening now. It was absolutely amazing. And it continued like that, but as I'd said, it's not perfect. It was a night right before... Christmas December 24th this last December he had turned 2 two weeks previous and the morning routine was I'd go down I'd make him a bottle I'd go back upstairs in his room give him the bottle and then take off his nighttime diaper and he would be distracted with the bottle and I could put the new diaper on get him ready for you know whatever and then take him downstairs only this time as I'm about to put the the, the new diaper on him he screams at the top of his lungs hurls his bottle at his crib and starts flailing his arms and kicking his legs as hard and as fast as he can and just screaming. He was furious, and I am completely taken aback. I hadn't even had an opportunity to take my medication yet. I go to the bottle, and I grab it, and I try and get him to feed it, and he just slaps it out of my hand. And he's still kicking. He's still kicking. And finally, I'm in a bad... Position and he nails me right in the balls. And I just fucking lose my mind. I go, God damn it, son! And I grab his legs, and I force him to the carpet. And I hold him there, looking at him with this ugly, angry grimace on my face. And I think it's the first time he had actually seen close up what that looked like because every other time his head was always against my shoulder he could never see me only hear me and this time he saw it and his cry changed immediately from angry to completely and totally afraid and I just collapsed I'm like god damn it I thought I was done with this bullshit and I apologize and I say, son, I am so, I, you, you have every right to be upset. What I've done is completely and totally unacceptable. I will do everything in my power to make sure it never happens again and make it up to you. And I get him calmed down enough to where I can get his clothes on. And I go downstairs and he doesn't want anything to do with me. He is trying to get away from me. And I totally get it. I completely understand. And I get him to the breakfast table, and uh, my wife had made him pancakes with fruit and syrup, and he absolutely loved it. So by the time he sat down, he was in a good mood again. But of course, I'm sitting there the day before Christmas just sort of staring, and my wife is like, "What's, what's wrong? I said, I completely lost my shit with him up there. I cannot believe that I did that to him. And she gets up and she walks over and she just gives me a really long hug. And she says, it sucks when you lose control. Yeah. And for me, the worst part of it was I was sitting there in the chair and tears are inadvertently falling out of my eyes because I look at her and I said, what this means... To me, is that I have turned into my father. And she says, No, no, sweetie. She says, You know what you did was wrong. I said, Yeah. Did you apologize right after? I said, Yeah. For what it's worth. She said, Well, you know, you're going to do everything you can to make sure it never happens again. I said, Yes. She said, Then you're nothing like dad. He's not perfect. She's not your dad, just a work in progress. So, my daughter was born last October and she is completely different, the vibe is completely different and I have not even gotten close to being annoyed with her, not even once, the anger just isn't there. My wife said that she's basically the kid that all parents have and they think, shit, this is easy, let's have another one. (laughs) You know, and then they get my son and go, fuck, what were we thinking? But my son has had two, two tantrums, identical to the one where I just completely lost it. And I had also, during this time, had been diagnosed or treated, rather, for ADD, which I had had since the sixth grade but just never was diagnosed with. And they put me on a, a kind of a low dose of Adderall, and that helps out a lot. And during this time, after the fact, uh, he threw these two tantrums in this, both times. was just able to kind of like... Say with a calm voice. Say, okay, you know, it's going to be done soon. It's all right. I'm, you know, don't, I'm blocking my nether regions to make sure I'm not getting kicked again. <laughs> and the second time I said, okay, look, because we have to brush his teeth. I'm like, look, if you just calm down, I, I, you know, I will give you a sticker if you let me brush your teeth. And he's just going nuts. And he's still crying and moaning, but he opens his mouth And I'm like, all right. So I start brushing his teeth, and he sits there for the entire two minutes because you've got that little hourglass you use, right? And tells time. And he sat there the entire time with his mouth open, letting me brush his teeth, crying and moaning the entire time because he really wanted that sticker. (laughs) I was impressed. So I, I get him out and I take him out to the living room, and I'm getting ready for this. Like, someone's getting a sticker, and I hear my wife go, what? You know, she's like, I heard him. He's not, what do you mean he gets a sticker? And it was great, you know. And right around this time that I'm reaching for the, for the pad, I remembered something that I had heard in therapy. My, my therapist, it's how do you heal this stuff? How do you heal this stuff? Because I knew exactly where it came from. How do you heal this stuff? And she said, and she gave me a couple of different things, but the one that came to mind at this exact moment was, do you congratulate yourself when you've done a good job? And I'm like... What are, you, what are you talking about? She's like, when you do something good, when you've done something good, do you look back on it and say, yeah, you know, dang it, good job. I did good. This is good work. I'm like, people do that? And she's like, uh, yeah. I said, I, I know. I just say, oh, you did something you were supposed to do, and I turn around and, and, and walk on to the next thing. And she says, no, no. Always reward yourself. Tell yourself that you've done something good. When you've done something good, congratulate yourself, you know. Give yourself some kind of adulation, some sort of reward. So I reached for the pad, and I pulled out two stickers. (laughs) One for him, and one for me. Thank you.
2: i This is Risk. This is William Fitzsimmons behind me now. And we just heard from Grant Robinson in Dallas. Seems like as good a time as any to bring up clit bumpers. <laughs> Folks, I want to remind you about the deal that we have with animative.com. We've got a limited time where you can get 50% off of <laughs> just about any item there. And here's the deal. You get three free adult DVDs, plus this free exclusive gift, and they'll throw in free shipping as well. The exclusive gift is, of course, that clit bumper. Uh, it, it's sort of a, a cock ring, but it also has a little thumity-doodle th- 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 on it. that That's what they're calling them these days, thumity-doodles. And the job of any good thuma be doodle <laughs> is bump and click. All right, so uh, here's the deal. AdamandEve.com. Go there on your computer, right? Then you type in the code RISK at the checkout. That's R-I-S-K at AdamandEve.com, and you'll get that fabulous deal, 50% off just about any item, three free adult DVDs, and... You don't, don't forget the, the best thing of all, a once in a lifetime opportunity for bumpin' clit. Now we are going to switch gears yet again. Our final story is such a beautiful one. This is Christine Gentry. She just shared this at our Boston show that we did. Uh, I don't know a few days ago <laughs> they're all blurring together at this point I need Ariana Huffington to teach me how to sleep again but that Boston show was extraordinary and Christine Gentry brought it to such a beautiful close here she is now with a story we call Making the Chain the time
3: So it's 2012, and I'm scrolling through Facebook, and in between, you know, cat videos and four square check-ins, because it's 2012, um, I see a post from an old friend of mine. Actually, I hadn't seen her in years. Uh, We were really close my first year of teaching, um, and the post was, I'm dying. I was like, I'm dying. My kidneys are completely giving up on me. All of my friends and family have already tried to donate a kidney to me, and this is my last resort. So Facebook is somebody willing to donate a kidney to me. And I dropped everything and sent her a message. I was like, I am so sorry. I didn't even know you were sick. Um, We haven't spoken in a while, but like absolutely you know, what do I need to do? And thus began this really intense series of tests. So I don't know if you guys know, but it's incredibly difficult to be approved to donate a kidney, which is why all of her friends and family had been rejected. So they run every test you can possibly run on a human being, including a pretty intense psychological exam. And if they find one thing wrong with you, they say no. Um, But I was very lucky and I got approved to donate but Julia and I, as a couple, were not as lucky because I could not directly give my kidney to her. We were not a direct match. Um, so it's a way more complicated than I have time to explain to you, but like, you can't—you have to be blood type, tissue type, antigen, and a bunch of other stuff, right? So I couldn't directly give my kidney to Julia, but we were approved to go into this really cool system called the National Kidney Swap Registry. So it's this algorithm, this amazing computer that tries to take all of the incompatible donor Recipient pairs across the country and figure out if I can give my kidney to some random person in the country that I'm a match to, and then further down this swap chain, Julia will get one, right? So we go into the system and the computer gets to work and it's trying to figure out how to make a chain. And at the very last minute, Julia directly matches with someone else, and my kidney is not needed. Guys, it was Amazing to watch the transformation of my friend Julia, right? She was not being hyperbolic on Facebook, right? She was attached to dialysis, which is basically the machine from Princess Pride. you know? Like, she was going home every day and hooking herself up and being like, please don't go to 50. Like, that was her day. And this one surgery, just every time I saw her, she was like a, a new and happier person. And then last year, she got pregnant. She had a baby, And I was looking at this child and I was like, oh my God, like this new life and every life that will be touched by it only exists because someone was willing to donate their kidney and I just couldn't, I just couldn't justify not doing it for a stranger. So I called the same organization and I said, this time I want to donate my kidney to anyone. I want to be what you guys call a good Samaritan donor. And it had been long enough to where they made me go through all the testing again. But again, I was very lucky. I got approved and this time it moved very quickly. I mean, within two weeks of my testing, the surgery date was set and the computer was loving it because this time I didn't go in with any conditions. Right? Last time I went in with a very complicated condition, which was Julia. Right? Julia has to receive one. And this time I'm like, I'll give it to anybody! Kidney for you! Kidney for you! (laughs) And the computer was like, awesome! And it got to work! And it, it figured out the longest possible chain, right? It was like, oh my god, she can give her kidney to this person who's been waiting, and their incompatible donor can give their kidney to this person, and their incompatible donor can give their kidney to this person. And so when the surgery date was set, there was already a chain of 16 surgeries that my donation was gonna set off, right? So I was gonna pull eight people off of that monstrous, horrible wait list. Like, what an honor. And I I struggled with how to kind of deal with, you know, the the celerity. It was moving so quickly. And I thought, you know, like, I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want people to think that this is really weird, that I'm some kind of like hero or saint. So I I chose to keep it very private. And I told very few people. um, But I did have to choose a caretaker. So I definitely had to ask someone to take care of me. You can't do anything, basically, for the first week. And my mother is a nurse, Seems pretty, seems pretty obvious <laughs> that you would ask your mom, the nurse. But it was a very complicated decision for me because my relationship with my mother the last couple years has been very strained. Um, she was... This glowing, like beautiful presence when I was a child, and this drinking problem had entered into her life and just sucked her into this really horrible place like physically, she was unwell, she looked twenty years older than she should have looked. Um, she was getting like slurring drunk like every night and and with it came this horrible cloud of negativity. I remember she came to visit me when I was living in New York. It was basically like a jump from alcoholic-serving establishment to alcoholic-serving establishment. And if they were more than two blocks away from each other, she would complain. And we would go down into the subway, and she would turn her tiny engagement ring around and say, I hear that they take your jewelry on the subway. And I was like, who are you? Who are you? You you don't even resemble the mother that I knew when I was a child. And so like when I had to choose this caretaker, I was thinking like first of all, there's a very real risk that this woman can't stay sober, honestly, for a week to take care of me. And also like that kind of negativity is not something I need around me when I'm going through this major recovery. And so I wrestled with it for a couple of days, but then I finally decided to ask her. So I invited her to come up, and she could only take exactly you know X number of days off, so she was going to come in the night before my surgery. And as the surgery approached, I was just, I, I, guys, I was getting overcome with this level of like fear and anxiety that I'd never known before and didn't really know how to deal with. Like, the, the most extreme medical thing I'd ever been through was having my wisdom teeth removed, you know? Like, I had no idea what to expect. I had read all the things, but I had no idea what to expect as far as the actual experience. And I remember the Friday before this surgery came like it was now less than a week away and I almost like I think I was having a panic attack I don't know I was my my palms were sweaty I was very lightheaded I was so afraid I couldn't stop focusing like laser focus on all of the things that I'd read you know like what if I die on this operating table (laughs) what if I get an infection what if my kidney dies on the runway trying to get to this person that I'm trying to help what if One day my other kidney fails. What if someone I really love needs one and I've already given it up to like Joe Schmo, you know? Like all of these thoughts just were swirling around and I had no one to share them with or or talk to. So I was like kind of a mess and I started frantically cleaning my apartment and I found this bag of clothes that I had shoved into the corner probably years ago that needed to be like tailored and repaired. And I was like, perfect, perfect distraction. So I go on Yelp and I'm like searching for the closest tailor. And sure enough, there was someone who, who worked right out of her apartment, literally down the street from mine, and her name was Brunhilde. <laughs> and I was like, yes, that Brunhilde, that's exactly what I need. And I give her a call, and of course she's available, thick German accent when she answers the phone. I was like, this is, this is perfect, this is meant to be. And so I start walking down the street to Brunhilde's apartment, and it's February, it's Boston, it's snowing, I'm crying, it's all very emo. (laughs) And I have my bag of clothes, and I get to Brunhilde's apartment, and she opens the door, and she looks exactly the way that you think she looks. Like, giant German woman, huge boobs. And I walk in and I open the bag of clothes and I start pulling them out to kind of explain to her the things that I needed done to them. And she cuts me off. She says, Honey, what's wrong? <laughs> and my my bottom lip starts quivering and I said, Oh Brunhilda I'm joining in a kidney on Thursday and I'm so scared. And she just grabs me, she gives this big old hug. She like sinks my head in the middle of <laughs> her big boobs. She's like, pawing my back. She goes, honey, you are doing a wonderful thing. <laughs> you must remember to be one with the pain. <laughs> it was just this like, it was this beautiful moment of this absolute stranger giving me exactly the thing that I so needed in that moment. And so when I was walking home from Brunhilde's house, I was like, I have to tell people about this. I have to. I mean, first of all, the only reason I even know that it's an option is because someone posted on Facebook, but also like, I'm not okay. I'm not okay right now. And I need to own that, and I need to reach out to my support network. And of course, like as soon as I posted about it, there's this outpouring of love and support. It just so bolstered me. And like Brunhilde and I decided that I would pick up my clothes the night before the surgery on purpose. And so I go to her apartment you know, the night before, and she opens the door. And this time she goes, honey, you look good. <laughs> Last week, not so good. <laughs> now you look good. And my mom flew in, you know, after I picked up my clothes, and I immediately got worried because the first thing she wanted to do was go get a burger and a couple beers. And I was like, oh, God. And I, like, kept my worry to myself. as like, maybe it's just night before jitters. Maybe she just got to get that, you know, last beer out of her system. And uh, we came home from the restaurant, and we sat down on my bed, and where knees were touching, and she held my hands across our laps. And I'm not even a religious person, but she said this prayer over me. She was basically just asking God to protect me, and I just felt it. I just felt this sense of peace. And I, I told her about how nervous and scared that I had been, and like how I think it's difficult for anonymous donors. Because, you know, in 2012, it was so easy. Anytime I started to get afraid about this possibility, I would just look at Julia. I'd be like, oh, obviously. Like, look at this person that I care about, who's like, suffering. And this time, you know, there's no palpable thing. There's no person to look at. I'm, like, sending my kidney onto the ether, you know? Like, or in my case, Ohio. <laughs> And it's hard, you know, so I was like telling her, I was crying, I was explaining, you know, the panic attack and Bernhilda and how amazing she is. And, And my mom helped me come up. She was like, you need to give these people faces. You know, these eight people, these eight recipients that you're pulling off of the wait list, like you need to imagine what they look like. And so... We came up together with this haven, you know, it was it was based on this plaza in Barcelona that I just stumbled upon and just it was so beautiful. Like I turned the corner and it opened up into this plaza with an old church And there was this big tree, and it was like raining orange flowers. And there was this little turquoise water fountain bubbling in the middle of it. And I was the only person there. And it was just the sound of my heart and like classical guitar bouncing off of the labyrinth of the Gothic Quarter. You know, it was just this magical place. And so we decided that was going to be my haven. And whenever I got scared, I would close my eyes and turn the corner. And I would be in that plaza. And I put the eight people at that fountain. And every time I got scared, I would just think about turning the corner and seeing those eight and being like, right, this is why I'm doing it. And I rolled into that operating room the next day, having never been more sure of anything in my life. Such a sense of calm and peace had come over me. But I am not here to lie to you. And the first few days of recovery were awful. They were so hard, and my mother got the crap shift. She did, and she did not leave my side. She slept in the hospital room with me. She didn't have a drop of alcohol or utter one complaint for five days. And the third day that I was in the hospital, they took me off of the dilated IV drip, and they tried to replace it with an oral version of the pill, and my stomach was not taking it. And you guys, like, nausea is just a terrible feeling regardless. Like, you all know it. It's awful. It's objectively a terrible feeling. But when nausea is bathed in terror because you've just had major surgery and you have this giant abdominal incision and you know that if you puke, it's going to hurt so badly, like, that was the feeling that I had. And my mother was comforting me. And then I puked. Valentine's Day. It was Valentine's Day, day three. And, and I was incapacitated and so I just puked all over myself. And so there was like the embarrassment, and I'm, I'm crying, and the pain. Guys, the pain. It was like every time I heaved, it was like a blacksmith had taken a newly forged spear and shoved it into my side. And my mother took this warm washcloth, and she was wiping my face. And I grabbed the bars of that hospital bed crying, and I said, I don't want to regret this, Mama. I really don't want to regret this. She was wiping my face saying, you won't, you won't, Christine, it'll get so much better. And the nurse came in and she was like, oh, we should probably try a different pill. And I grabbed her scrubs and I was like, you will never put another prescription pain medicine in my mouth. And she goes, it's really early. And I was like, I don't care. So that's how on day three of my surgery, I started recovery on just over-the-counter Tylenol. And it was my mother who pushed me to get out of bed every day, even though it hurt so badly. She said, you can walk a little further this time. I saw you touch the edge of that windowsill yesterday. I bet you can make it to the other side of that window today. And when they finally took my catheter out and I was so excited about taking a shower and then got so crushed because I couldn't do it myself. It was my mom who took me and led me from the bed and she walked me to the shower and she put the seat down in it and she took my clothes off and she sat me down in the shower and then she took her clothes off and she stepped into the shower and she closed the curtain and she bathed me so gently and we were both crying and she said, Christine, it's just like when you were a baby. I went home on day four, and my mom and my best friend took care of me for another six days, and my friends brought me more food than I can even eat, and my students made me homemade cards. And then I got a call from the National Kidney Registry about a month ago, and they said, Christine, the chain that you started is still going. It's 56 surgeries long. Your one decision has pulled 28 people off of the wait list. What an honor. That's more people than could ever fit around that fountain. And they said, we want you to come to our gala. It's the longest chain we've had in years. We want you to speak. And I said, absolutely, as long as I can bring my mom. Thank you.
2: is all for this week's episode folks this is stars behind me now i don't know that the lyrics are all that appropriate after christine's story but i liked the sound okay here's the giant list of places we're appearing next on june 17th we're back in philly philadelphia come to see us on june 17th then june 18th We're in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. For the first time ever, we're doing the show at the Bootleg. That's going to be a very special show, so come on out, Los Angeles. On June 22nd, we're back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. That's going to be an all-funny-stories show. Josh Gondelman will be there. T.S. Madison will be there. Holy shit, so exciting. On June 25th, We're in St. Louis, Missouri, and we're still taking pitches for that one. The pitch deadline is May 28th, so get those pitches in. The theme is Worried, but the show is on June 25th in St. Louis, Missouri. On July 8th, we're in San Francisco, California, and we're still taking pitches for that one, too. The theme is Resonant. So pitch us, you know, the submissions page is on our site, risk slash submissions. Don't forget that extraordinary class we're doing with one month. It's called storytelling for business. And for an entire month, you can be participating. You can be seeing me delivering lectures, seeing me telling stories and then explaining how they work getting tips from me online, I'll literally be reacting to the stories that you send videos in for. If you have a career, you need to be telling stories in one way or another, and this one-month online class is the way to do it. I'm being completely sincere when I say I've never taught such a complete and in-depth and hands-on class. So if you go to onemonth.com slash risk... You can enter to win a free enrollment into the Storytelling for Business premium course. Everyone who enters will also get 20% off with a coupon code, no matter what. So, onemonth.com slash risk. And if you love what we do here at the podcast, please remember, we're listener supported. Go to the support us page at risk-show.com we very very dearly appreciate the support of our fans folks today's the day take a risk Okay, first things first, what is your name? Uh, my name? It's um, McLovin. McLovin? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's your first name?
0: What? Your first name. My first name? Technically, I don't have a first name, so don't worry about my first name.
2: So it's... Just McLovin?
0: Yeah. That's badass. It is badass. It's really it's a cool. Badass, name. yeah.